Well, whether you like it or not, uh, it seems that life is full of tests and testing. Uh, School, there's lots of tests. Maybe in your workplace, there's tests. I was uh, work, I worked as an electrical engineer and a bit as an electrician, and it was full of testing. Almost everything you, you did, you had to get out uh, test meters and test it to make sure it worked properly. Maybe you've been driving the car, pulled over by the police for a breath test. Maybe you've cooked a cake and you stick the skewer in to test to see if it's cooked. Maybe you've been to the doctor recently for doctor's tests. I bought a set of headphones recently and there was this little card that fell out, tested by number 31. Uh, Some people, their whole life is there simply to test things, make sure if they work. There's some tests that we want to pass. School exam. There's some tests that we hope for a fail. I had a little thing burnt off my cheek a few years ago and the doctor had to test it to see if it was a bad cancer. I didn't even know there was good cancers and bad cancers. It turned out not to be a bad cancer, so I failed the test, but that was a good result. There's some tests that we want to fail. There's some tests that we do lots of times till we get them right, like the P's test. I've heard of people going for their P's driving test five, six times, and then finally they pass. I think it might have been better if they didn't. (laughs) There's some tests that we only get to do once. When I was in year 11, I applied for the Air Force and I had to do a series of tests. And one particular test that I failed meant that I could never be in the Air Force. It was a fail once you never get a second go test. In Luke chapter 4 this morning, Jesus is tested. And it is a test that doesn't just happen once. Satan keeps testing him and testing him his whole life. In fact, right at the end it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So we're looking at a time of testing in Jesus' life here, but this wasn't the only time he was tested. It kept going on all through his life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, when Peter says to him, no, you can't be the Christ, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He was tested by Satan all his life. And the other thing, this is a test that, although perhaps Jesus wants to pass it, Satan does not want Jesus to pass it. Satan wants him to fail. And so Satan here is testing Jesus as hard as he can, throwing everything against him to see if he will fail. And this is a test that in the whole history of the world, no one else has ever passed. From Adam way back in the Garden of Eden who failed under temptation, every single human being has failed when they're tempted. And not done all the time what is right. So Jesus is entering this testing here and no one before him has ever passed. Now, some of you, do you want to turn that down a little, just a tad Anton? Some of you are familiar with what happens here and we've read along and we know that Jesus passes the test here. Um, It might have been a bit exciting if we didn't know the ending, we could ramp it up, but I, I think we all do. What I particularly want to do this morning is not so much think about whether Jesus passed or failed, but why he was tested and so what? What does it mean for us? What is so, why is it so important that Jesus was tempted here in Luke? So let's uh, look at it, pick up your Bibles and open them up to Luke chapter 4, verse 1, if you haven't already. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. 
There's a lot to notice just in that first verse there. Firstly, who is it that leads Jesus to be tempted here? Chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Now, we don't want God to lead us into temptation, but here the Spirit of God is leading Jesus into temptation. This is not some accident. Jesus needs to be tested. This is part of what it means for Jesus to be human. See, God does not have fleshly desires. God cannot be tempted, James tells us. But Jesus was God who became human. And he did have fleshly desires. He got hungry. He hurt. He probably had bad days at work. He had things that made him angry. He knew just what it was like to be like us in every way. And part of that was to be tempted. And it's the spirit who leads him into the desert here to be tempted, part of what he needs to do in order to rescue us. The second thing I want you to notice, just from verse 1, what has just happened straight before Jesus' temptation? Verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. Now, if you turn back in Luke chapter 3, there's this long genealogy list of names. But before that, at the River Jordan, that's where Jesus was baptised. Back in chapter 3, Jesus was baptised. There was a voice from heaven, you are my son. But between the baptism and the temptation, Luke puts in this huge list of names that runs for half a chapter, Jesus' family tree. A list of names that goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam, who is called the son of God. And that list of names there kind of rewinds us back all the way in history, back to Adam, the very first human being, the son of God. And it's as if we're back there a second time all over again. It's kind of like a new Adam, if you like. And just like Adam was put in the garden in Genesis 3 with Satan to test him, the new son of God, Jesus, is led out not into a garden but into the desert by the Spirit, to be tested. And in Luke 3, 4, sorry, as we read on, three of Jesus' temptations are described. And the three temptations that Luke describes, uh, there's more than just three, we'll find that out later, but these three that Luke describes all have something in common. They're all to do with Jesus doubting that he is the Son of God. Look how the first temptation starts in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God. Now, what a clever thing for Satan to go for. Because doubts are horrible things to have, aren't they? And I reckon if Jesus knew that he was the son of God, if he knew 100% that he wouldn't sin, if he knew that after all this was happened, he would be given everything, how much strength would that give him? And so Satan tries to get Jesus to doubt that he's actually the son of God. In Luke 3, the voice came from heaven, you are my son. Satan saying, are you really God's son? It's just like Genesis 3. Did God really say you must not eat from the tree? That's what the devil loves to do. Just get us to doubt 
what God says. And so verse 2, Jesus ate nothing during those days. At the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Jesus here has been in the desert for 40 days. He's literally starving and Satan challenges him to make some food from stones. Jesus replies by quoting back a verse from Deuteronomy. If you look down at the bottom of your Bibles, uh, you might have some little numbers where it shows you that the three times Jesus speaks to Satan, he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6, 16. Now, if you go back and read Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, where Jesus quotes from the first time, it's actually talking about when God led his people, the nation of Israel, through the desert. And when they were in the desert, he provided manna for them. Manna was bread that came down from heaven. It was this strange bread that came out of the sky. God's people were in the middle of nowhere. God had led them there. But they didn't need to worry about their food because God provided for them. But even then, when God was showering bread on his people, they didn't trust him. If you remember, they tried to collect two days' worth of manna the first time it appeared because they were worried that they might not get fed the second day and then all the manna went rotten and got maggots in it. They didn't trust God, even though he was feeding them. Jesus here is in the desert, a bit like Israel. He's been there for 40 days, but there's been no bread from heaven to feed him. And do you see the temptation? Satan's saying, if you really are the son of God, why isn't God looking after you? Where's the bread? Maybe you should be turning some of these stones into bread. Maybe that's what you should be doing. And what is Jesus' reply? He quotes from Deuteronomy, man does not live on bread alone. In other words, where Israel failed to trust God, I will not fail. I will trust God, whether he feeds me or not. Because not, what's not important is whether I've got bread. What is important is whether I'm obeying God. Now, the second temptation is similar. Verse 5, the devil leads Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it's been given to me. I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And again, in reply to this temptation, which seems to be a temptation for power, a temptation for Jesus in quite a, a simple way to get given all the kingdoms of the world without having to go through the cross, Jesus replies by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 this time. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, if you go back and read Deuteronomy 6, and I'd recommend when you get home, you read Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. In Deuteronomy 6, again, it is talking about Israel and God promised his people that he would give them a huge kingdom, a huge inheritance, their own land, their own houses, all kinds of good things, vineyards, olive trees. And God says to his people, in that day when you've got it all, when you've got everything that I've given to you, don't go off and worship other gods. Worship the Lord your God only. 
And again, way back then, Israel failed. Even though they were given everything in the promised land, they went and worshipped other gods. And here is Jesus. And what does he have compared to what Israel had? He has nothing. He doesn't have a great kingdom yet. In fact, Satan has more than Jesus has. Satan says, look, Jesus, I can give you all this. It's mine. But Jesus does not fail. He would prefer to have nothing and be faithful to God and leave it in God's hands in God's timing. So he says, worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. Now, in the third temptation, Satan uh, gets a little bit cleverer or maybe he's just been saving the big punch till last. But this time, he actually quotes the Old Testament to Jesus. Jesus has been quoting at him. He decides to quote at Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 9. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, that sounds like a strange temptation to be up on the top of the temple and get told to jump off. Like, why would Jesus want to do that? But that quote there actually comes from Psalm 91. And in Psalm 91... God promises that anyone who trusts him will be provided for, will be taken care of. And in a way, that's exactly what Satan tests us with, isn't it? If God really loves you, if God is really looking after you, then why is your life like it is? Why does he let you go through these struggles? Why did God let this happen if you really are his child? And Satan is saying to Jesus, if you really are God's son, why are you out here in the middle of the desert with no food being tempted by me? God should be protecting you. And in fact, if you go back and read Psalm 91, and I'd suggest you do that during the week, at the end of Psalm 91, God actually invites his people to call on him for help. And Satan's saying to Jesus, give it a go. Trust Psalm 91 like God tells you to. Ask God for help. Jump off the top of the temple here and see if God will protect you. Solve this once and for all. Prove that you're the son of God. Or maybe you're not the son of God. Maybe God won't save you. Maybe you're not who you think you are. Prove it. What's Jesus' response this time? Well, again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, this time, chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus answered, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, if you go back and read that bit of Deuteronomy, it's all about Israel, again, in the desert. This time, they think they're going to die because they have no water. And rather than trusting God, they complain and grumble against Moses and they put God to the test. They demand that God gives them some water. I wonder if that's sometimes what we do. God, if you're really there, do this. When we're desperate, God, if you're really there, prove it to me. Fix this. Jesus says, no. God doesn't have to prove himself to us. 
He's already spoken to us. He's already told us what we need to know. We need to trust him wherever he leads us. And so for 40 days in the desert, Jesus is tempted with food, with power, with comfort, with doubts of who he is, with doubts whether God loves him. But he didn't fail. And that's not all that he was tempted with. Look back at chapter 4, verse 1 of Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. See, Luke just tells us about three of the temptations, but the tempting went for 40 days. It's not as if Jesus was in the desert for 40 days and then the tempting started. Satan was at him for 40 days. And then when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus until an opportune time. In other words, Satan is there waiting for another time to test Jesus. Satan was at Jesus his whole life. But Jesus didn't give in. He didn't fail. He always trusted God. That's incredible, considering how often we fail. But do you want to know what is the really big spin out of all this for us? This is what makes Jesus our perfect rescuer. Because for Jesus' whole life, he lives a perfect life that we can't live. And then having perfectly obeyed God all his life, he offers his life as a perfect sacrifice to God for us in our place when he was crucified. The perfect human who never gave into temptation gave himself for us who always give into temptation. But more than that, Jesus was raised to life again after that and the Bible tells us that he now is able to sympathise with us when we're tempted. He knows exactly what we're going through when we're, when we're tempted. I am... Um, there's often a bit of argument with people about who's the best superhero. Some people like Superman because he's completely invincible. If Superman takes a bullet, it just bounces off. He's only got one weakness, kryptonite. Other people prefer Batman because he doesn't have any superpowers. He's just like us and he's just built himself some good technology. If Batman gets a bullet in his chest or his neck, he dies. So he's real. See, Superman, he doesn't really fear bullets like we do. He's not like us. And I wonder sometimes if we think of Jesus in a similar way, like he's some spiritual Superman. Yes, he was human. We know that the Bible says he was a man. Yeah, he had struggles. But maybe he just had some special uh, access to, to be immune to temptation that we don't have. Somehow his temptation was less than we go through. That's not true. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, but was without sin. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll just leave Luke for this morning there, 
And I want you to have a look at Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews is reflecting back on Jesus' temptation. Hebrews 4, verse 15. In the Old Testament, there was a kind of middleman between people and God. He was called the priest. And God was way up there, so perfect, no human beings could go anywhere near him. And so you needed a priest who kind of understood you because the priest was human and he knew your weakness and he felt sorry for you. So you could come and talk to the priest and he'd feel sorry for you. And then he could sort of speak to God on your behalf and offer sacrifices and like a broker, he could fix things up. And Hebrews is saying, we don't need a priest anymore because of what Jesus has done. He actually fully understands us. Let's look, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. But we have one, and this is talking about Jesus now, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace. And that's talking about coming to God and asking him for forgiveness. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, when you sin, you must not think that Jesus doesn't understand your weakness. He does. And he sympathizes fully with it. When you're tempted, look, do you ever feel like Jesus doesn't know what you're going through? That because he didn't sin, his temptation was somehow less than yours? That's a lie. That's not true. Who's tempted the most? The person who gives in, like us, or the person who resists? The person who resists is tempted the most because when you give in, the temptation stops. We think we know what it is to be tempted because we're tempted for two minutes or four minutes or an hour before we give in. Jesus was tempted for 40 days and more. Sometimes I go down to the gym. Not very often. But down at the gym, there's this uh, kind of lounge chair, flat thing that you lie on. And there's this bar that you push up like this. And it's called bench pressing, they tell me. And um, sometimes I go down to the gym and after I've been on the treadmill and done all the little things, I like to have a go at the bench press. And let me tell you, the bar alone is enough to, to lift. You shouldn't have to put weights on it. But I get these tiny little weights. It's embarrassing. And I put one on each side. It's a joke. And then I can push them up five or six times. And then I stop and I give up. And I go on to something else. Let me tell you, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's this huge muscly guy next to me and he has these massive weights on the end that I couldn't even lift one. The bar's almost bending. And he's huffing and puffing and groaning and the veins on his head are nearly popping out and it looks like his muscles are about to explode and he lifts those things 10 or 20 times and you can see him just pushing right to the end and he makes it. Now who really knows what it's like to bench press? Me, isn't it? Because I failed after five? No, him. He was back where I was and he's done so much more. He does what I did before I pulled out and more. Jesus was tempted with what you and I have been tempted with before we gave in and more and more. 
There's no temptation that you have, whether you passed it or whether you failed, that Jesus hasn't experienced. It may not be exactly the same. You know, your temptation might be the triple chocolate, Byron Bay, mud cake ice cream. Look, that wasn't round when Jesus walked the earth. But he went without food for 40 days. Who of us knows what it's like to be that hungry? He may not have the internet, but he was a male. He went through puberty. He was tempted in every way that we are. There's no temptation that you have that Jesus doesn't understand. Therefore, he can sympathise with you, with me, in our weakness. You might say, well, sure, Jesus knows what it is to be tempted, but he doesn't know what it is to fail. Jesus doesn't know the shame and guilt of failure. Or does he? What do you think he took on himself on the cross? Your guilt, your sin, your shame. In fact, he understands God's judgment in a way that if you're a follower of him, you never will have to. Because he took it for you. It's not that Jesus can't sympathise with us. It's the other way around. We will never understand what he went through. So, if you feel weak... If you're tempted, if you doubt, go to Jesus. Pray to him. Throw yourself on him. He knows exactly what you're going through. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's a very clear lesson here for you. If you want to be friends with God, you don't need to come to some minister or some priest to talk to you on God's behalf. You don't need any other middleman. You can come to Jesus. He understands you, he knows what you've done wrong and he wants to forgive you and he's the only way to Jesus. He's the only person who's never sinned and who died for you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, just be clear this morning, do you see what Jesus' mood towards you is? It's sympathy. He's like an older brother who wants to put his arm around you and help you. He knows what you're going through when you're tempted. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that when we pray, we don't have to go through saints who could somehow might be able to understand us or through Mary who might be able to sympathise with us because she was human but thank you that we can come through Jesus who is able to sympathise with us fully. Thanks that he knows exactly what it's like to be human. And thank you even right now as I pray Jesus is there as our high priest knowing exactly what is on everyone's heart here this morning, sympathising with us, wanting what's best for us, 
wanting us to be forgiven, wanting us to draw nearer to you. So, Father, through Jesus, we pray that you might work in our lives to understand you better, that we'd never run away from you in our time of need, but that we'd always run towards you. Father, we pray that this might give us great confidence as we live, as we die, as we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.